I don't know about you, uh, but I know that it is true for me that when I think about the book of Ruth, when I spend time studying the book of Ruth, I smile. It makes me glad to be able to study Ruth. I did not smile a lot during my time and study and preaching of the book of Judges. If you happen to uh, stop by over the past, whatever it was, three, four months now, uh, my little booth at my favorite little coffee shop and kind of looked over at me, you would have seen a not pleasant expression. And sure enough, many people asked me, what's going on, what's wrong? And my answer was always, I'm in Judges. Not that that meant anything to the average person who was in the coffee shop. Uh, but when I explained a little bit of that portion of the Word of God, then it kind of clicked. And the answer was inevitably, why are you preaching from that? Uh, preach on something positive. So here, here we are. I smiled all week this week. People kind of looked at me with that expression like, that guy's nuts. What is he doing sitting in the booth smiling uh, while he's doing that? But there I was with that expression on my face. This has often been called uh, perhaps the most delightful book that we have in uh, scriptures, the small book of Ruth. Some have called it one of the most delightful stories in this period of antiquity. Perhaps it stands out particularly for us and for all who have read it and looked at it because it takes place, as we read in the very beginning of it, during the time of the judges. During the time when, as we've seen, there was such incredible moral and spiritual decay taking place when you then see a story like this one, ooh, that light shines very bright. It may only be a small story, but it shines very brightly in the midst of a very dark period in the history of Israel. Lo and behold, what we find when we read the book of Ruth, when we hear the book of Ruth, is that all was not quite as dark as it may have seemed at that particular moment. God was working. God was preserving a remnant. God always preserves a remnant of his people. You can ask Elijah that question who had to learn that exact thing himself. Our confession says it this way, there shall always be a people to worship God on the earth according to his will. God was working in the midst of this time and there were at least, as we're going to see as this story moves forward, some small pockets of typical, average, ordinary people trying to live a life of faith in a sea of apostasy. Trying to figure out how do we live our lives according to the law of God, doing that which is good amongst our family members and for those who are here in the community. In fact, how do we love one another? And not just love and the brotherly love thing that we were looking at this morning in the men's class, but in the affectionate love between a man and a woman. If Judges was a tragedy, and I pointed out particularly in the story of Jephthah how this follows all the forms of a tragedy, and the book as a whole follows all the forms of a tragedy. If Judges was a tragedy, then the book of Ruth is a comedy. At, you, at least in the way those terms are classically understood, 
But to be sure, this is a divine comedy. This is saturated with the sovereignty of God throughout it. All these little movements that we see here, we can look at it from a distance. I don't know if we could have seen it when we were right there in the midst of it, like then, but we could look at it from a distance and see that a divine comedy is playing out on the stage in front of us. It follows, then, a biblical trajectory. And this is a trajectory that, that the words of which you'll recognize, and I'm going to make it our call to worship for the next three weeks. It wasn't this week intentionally. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. That's the trajectory that it follows. Sowing in tears, reaping with shouts of joy. That is true. It is true in the lives of God's people in every age. It is true in Naomi's life, who oddly enough is actually the main character of the book of Ruth. It's true in the life of Jesus Christ. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And it's true in your life as well, in our lives. That's the model that is played out for us here on the stage set before us. And I want to use that as our structure today. And if, in fact, that is our structure, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy, then, though I'd like to skip over it, we have to begin where it begins, which is to say, sowing in tears. We have to begin with the bitterness of the passage as chapter 1 is laid out for us. Call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me that name that means pleasant or delightful. For Naomi, her name has become, over the course of the years, over the time after uh, having left Bethlehem and sojourned in Moab and now on her return, her name has become a joke, a cruel, divine joke. Her name itself is a satire. It is a mockery of her life and her circumstances. Joy's not here today. It's like someone named Joy whose life is full of sadness and who finds the name to be an irritant every time she hears it said. Is this Naomi? The townspeople of Bethlehem say when they see her coming in through the gates. And, and one can imagine that perhaps that is a simple statement of identity. People change over the years, and uh, it's been a while since they had seen Naomi, and perhaps it's just, a, it's just an observation. Is, is, that, is that Naomi coming up here? But I think it's probably a little bit more than that going on. Perhaps they also can't tell that it's Naomi because she's, go she's coming in a different person than she went out as. In particular, she's now bereft, bereft of her husband, bereft of her two sons with whom she went out. And of course, as she's coming back without them, she's also coming back with no grandchildren. Life has been hard on Naomi, and they can see that life has been hard on Naomi. And perhaps then, even in their own expressions, we can't hear this because we just hear Naomi, the name, but perhaps they're going, is that pleasantness? Is that delight? 
walking up to us right now, the one who you can see the deep lines etched on her faces because of the sorrow, because of the loss she has experienced. Life has dealt her some cruel blows, and indeed, that is the case. And we should just work through the cruel blows here as the story unfolds for us. Elimelech and family leave Bethlehem during a famine, is where our story begins. That's ironic because the name Bethlehem, and again, these are just names to us, but the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay, so you have to leave the house of bread in the land that God has provided because there's a famine in the house of bread. But they leave this God-given land and they sojourn off to Moab. And this brings questions immediately to mind. I was telling someone that I was preaching through Ruth uh, two nights ago, and they immediately asked this question. Should they have stayed? Should they have stayed in Bethlehem and not gone to Moab? After all, some people did stay in Bethlehem. Apparently, those who greeted them on their return had, I assume, stayed in Bethlehem or stayed close by enough so that Bethlehem was still a city and still people who knew about Naomi and her family. Should they have gone to Moab? of all places. Moab is on the east side of the Jordan, on the east side, sorry, your direction, east side of the Dead Sea. It's not in the land proper, and it's a place that has a seriously bad history, and I'm not going to go through it all right now, but the development of it, just briefly, goes from, from Lot and an incestuous relationship with his daughter. These become the Moabites, and if you recall, the Moabites were one of the enemies that were persecuting the Israelites back in the book of Judges, one of the groups from which Israel had to be delivered. So you got to ask some questions about Elimelech and his decision-making process and whether or not they should have gone to Moab or not. Our author does not give us like a statement. They went to Moab and this was wrong. We don't have that written for us. There are negative things that happen to them there, and maybe, maybe, and that's an important word here, maybe we can see that as some kind of judgment, but let's hold it open because we don't know exactly. We, we, we can't figure it out exactly. In any case, that's where they end up. Now, it's a hard blow to leave your hometown, your home city, because of famine. None of us can possibly imagine what that is like, but to have to travel off to a far-off land and to establish yourself in a new place, but it is a blow to them. They settle in Moab, and when they get there to Moab, of course, we read that the next thing that takes place is her husband, Naomi's husband, dies there. We have absolutely no details about how he dies or what took place during that, but you go off to find refuge in a place and your husband, the leader of the family who's taken you there, dies. It is a serious blow, and our author instructs us she was left with her two sons. And being left is an important concept here in this uh, first chapter in particular. Those two sons then marry Moabite women, which, on the whole, doesn't seem to fit well with biblical instructions about whom you should marry. It seems to be contrary to what God would have them to do. Be that as it may, 
you nevertheless have perhaps a little bit of hope that God will use this broken situation and somehow provide for this family, provide particularly for Naomi by having children. But we don't see that taking place. Instead, we see that after this time, these parents never were able to have their children. For 10 years, they lived without any progeny. Naomi, who is left without, has nothing to fill her hands, no, no children, no grandchildren to put in her hands anymore. And then the men, of course, without comment, also die. And so she's left without husband, without sons, without grandchildren, without a present, without a future. Think of an ancient world here where these were the ways of securing present provision through sons and through a, a, a father, or in this case, a husband, and the way to secure the future. And she has none of it. She's left without anything or any means of securing those things. And this then leads to her decision to return to Bethlehem and the attempt to leave behind her daughters-in-law. She doesn't want them to come with her because she perceives her life in such a way that to be around her, those whom she loves, those with whom she's connected, end up dying. There is no hope in hanging around Naomi. So she wants them to leave and to stay in Moab. There's a deep and a profound emptiness in Naomi. It is a shell of a life. What do we say of it? Bad luck? Bad karma? Cruel fate? Bad decisions? A curse? A frowning providence? A judgment on disobedience? Well, whatever we might say about it, Naomi frames it in the language of biblical lament. Listen to the way she describes what has taken place. Naomi, how did this happen to you? Verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went out with all these things. I had, I had sons and the potential of, of grandchildren to come after them. I had a husband. He was somewhat maybe respected. We went out. We looked like the first family of Bethlehem going out into the world, and we came back empty, and I've got nothing. In effect, what she is saying is that she has been judged and found guilty. And the witness against her was God. That's tough. The witness against her was God. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In other words, her life was put on trial. God stood as the witness against her, and 
God was the judge who sentenced her by bringing the calamity upon her. Naomi, how did you do, how did you get like this? God has done it to me. God has done it to me. And can anyone argue against God? Well, I suppose. I suppose, but who can argue well against God? Who can argue persuasively against God? Therefore, call me Mara, because my life is one big, bitter void. In fact, it's worse than a void. It's worse than a void because it was full, and now it's empty. I know what fullness is like, and now it's been sucked away from me. I've been emptied. Well, so far, this book isn't delightful. Naomi is sowing in tears. That's all that she's got with which to sow. She's left empty-handed. No more seed to sow. And you can extend that metaphor to all the parts of her life. No more seed to sow, and therefore, no more harvest to reap. She's got nothing in her hands, nothing to offer anyone. But this is a comedy. This is not a tragedy. And for those with eyes to see, even before we get to the good parts, the upcoming chapters, the seeds of hope are scattered throughout this passage. Throughout this first chapter are the things that for us, for an Israelite hearer, reader of these things, would have cued us in to something else is happening behind this. There's some good behind what looks like a complete mess, or at least there's some hope in the middle of it. I want to list four of them for you. Where's the hope? One, patriarchal echoes. Patriarchal echoes. When we hear things like this, when you hear things like being driven from the promised land because of a famine, and apparent and indicated infertility, and no children or no grandchildren, sons that have died, then it kind of causes your ears to perk up. We go, wait a minute, and an ancient Israelite would certainly have heard of it and gone, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like something. That sounds like something I've heard before. In fact, it kind of sounds like all of the Bible to this point. It sounds kind of like Adam and Eve being driven out of a place. It kind of sounds, with a loss of a son, it kind of sounds like Abraham and Isaac who get into the promised land and immediately because of a famine in the land are forced to go to another place that isn't such a good place to go, as it turns out, when you're looking for help. It sounds like a whole host of women who have experienced infertility and who are left without children wondering who will be my heir, who will come after, who will provide, who will inherit the covenant promises. How will these things take place? And it makes us pause. When we hear the similarities in these stories, we pause and we go, wait a minute, what's up here? Those actually turned out amazingly. What's going to happen here? 
seat of hope number two, spoken lament. As many have noted, the book of Ruth is moved along by dialogue. It is full of speaking. Naomi's lament that she offers here is brutal. It may not sound proper to us to ascribe all of these things to the Lord, to the Almighty that have taken place to her, and to say nothing about one's culpability themselves. That might not sound right to us, but she is, in fact, speaking. Last week, I quoted, the distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. Absolute despair is characterized by silence. Naomi still speaks. She has not gone agnostic. She's not gone atheistic. She has not gone silent. She hasn't said, I'm never going back to those faith people. They always tell me, reaping and shouts of joy. Well, the reality is, life is one big famine in a dry, thirsty land. And I'm tired of hearing them be hopeful and joyful. She hasn't said that. She hasn't taken that action. She returns to Bethlehem and she speaks. And in the spoken struggle, there is hope. Do you see it? In the spoken struggle, there is hope. In the silence of despair, it's harder to come by hope. So we've got two seeds of hope. One are the patriarchal echoes. The second are, is the spoken lament. The next seed of hope is, of course, the great one that we find in this passage. It is the clinging loyalty of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Hope in the form of a widowed Moabite daughter-in-law whom you've tried to send away for her own sake because you, Naomi, you are a dry well in terms of blessing. Nothing good comes out of your life anymore. And you want to get this woman whom you love and Orpah, you want to get them away from you. Hope is unexpected from Ruth. She's not the place where Naomi would have thought, ah, that's hope. That's hope right there in her. In other, she reminds her of loss. That's all Naomi can see when she looks at Ruth. Loss. You're just the symbol of what I don't have and what I will never have and can't have. The affection between Naomi and her daughters is clear in the way she tries to bless them and persuade them to leave. She wants the best for them, and they love her. Orpah's departure is sometimes debated. Did she do the right thing? Did she do the wrong thing? Should she have stayed with them? Whatever we might say to that, whatever we might think to that, remember that she's actually doing what her mother-in-law wanted her to do. She's heeding the pleading that Naomi was giving to go and go back to your parents, go back to that place. And so whatever we might say, her departure is completely understandable. We can completely identify with that and say, well, that's not a bad decision. Stay in your area, stay with your people. 
because this is not going to be an easy road that we're about to go on. But, verse 14, Ruth clung to her. What a statement. What a picture that is. It is a physical representation of what is in her heart and what she is about to say. Ruth clung to her. Clinging. We were made with arms and with hands by the provision of the Lord, and these arms and these hands want to cling to something. They want to hold on to something. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling, exact same word, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jacob would not let the angel go. Deuteronomy 10, on the front of your bulletins, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. It's the exact same word. Hold fast to cling to the Lord. And if we read more of Deuteronomy chapter 10, we would see that it is set in juxtaposition to when you go into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't cling to the gods of that place. We are clingers. We cling on to things. That is inevitable. Okay, no one doesn't cling. That does, that's too many negatives. But in any case, everybody clings. Let me just say it that way. Everybody clings to something. You're clinging to something. And what God says is cling to the right thing. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to gilded toys of dust. That's a line from the All for Jesus hymn that we sang earlier. They cling to gilded toys of dust. You can cling to all sorts of things. Our call to worship said it this way, same word, my soul clings to you. My soul clings to you. Clinging is a beautiful picture of covenantal loyalty and what follows the physical clinging is one of the most beautiful, clear, comforting, hopeful confessions that we find in all of Scripture. Now, picture it for a moment because it's worth imaging what's happening here. I don't know exactly how Ruth was clinging to her. Was she on a knee and clinging around her waist? Were they embracing as she spoke these words? Was she, what, were they embracing and then steps back and holds her shoulders, grabs her hands, and says, Naomi, listen to me. You think you are alone, and you are not. You think you will be alone, and you will not. Can you feel my grip? Can you see what I'm saying to you right now? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried and this is the testimony 
This is swearing an oath by the Lord. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I will not let you go. Oh, how our hearts need to hear in our day those words, to be able to say them from the heart with the affection that is evident in the scene and the commitment and follow-through that is seen in the rest of the story. Ruth binds herself to Naomi in the adventure of faith till death do us part. And Naomi, by the way, till death do us part, and I mean that, and actually what I mean is death won't part us because where you're buried, I'll be buried. Till death do us part, I am with you in the adventure of faith. Let me say this clearly. Some people look at faith as the easy way out, as the crutch. What would have been easy for Ruth is to stay in Moab. It was all she knew. It was familiarity. It was family, whatever remnants of her family remained. It was the land she knew, the people she knew. The adventure was faith. That was the hard road. And that is the hard road and the adventure in your life as well. If you think you're taking an adventure, rejecting the faith, you're taking the easy way. That is the path most traveled in this world, the path of faithlessness. The hard path is the path of faith. Ruth takes the adventure of faith to leave her home, to go into a land where she will live as not only a foreigner, not only a refugee who is there, but amongst those who call themselves enemies. Historically, these two people, Moabites and Israelites, but she will hold fast the confession of her faith. And her covenant fidelity to Naomi, to Yahweh, and to Yahweh's people. Now, Naomi, at this stage, does not yet have the imagination to see what this means. She will get to Bethlehem with, who knows, Ruth trailing a little bit behind her, walking with her head down, trying trying not to make a big stir. She will travel to Bethlehem, and Ruth will have to listen to Naomi even after this declaration. She'll have to listen to Naomi say, the Lord has left me empty. I have nobody. But Ruth knows, and we know, you're not empty. You've got a Ruth. And, sorry, spoiler alert, most of you know where the story goes. Chapter 4, <laughs> she's worth more than seven sons. Naomi can't see that right now. All she can see is loss. All she can see is what she doesn't have. And Ruth is right behind her. Fourth 
seed of hope that's in the passage. And I'll just say it quickly because we can say it as quickly as the verse does as well. Chapter 1 ends with these words. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you go, wait, wait. We left House of Bread in a time of famine. We were empty during the time of famine, and we just came back to House of Bread, and it's harvest time. Not enough imagination in Naomi to know what that means, but it's harvest time. People of God, we live in a bitter world, in a sad world, in a world that is full of tears. And some of us experience more of that, and some, for whatever reason, in God's providence, experience less of that. Sometimes the tears are intense, and they've come from an incredible time of particular loss that has taken place in our lives. And sometimes the tears are just part of a long, slow grind of life that has worn us down leaving us feeling empty in the world. It is a sad and bitter world. And into a sad and bitter world, a seed of hope in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ has been planted. A kernel of wheat that died and was buried in the earth and from that red, from that blood, from that seed, a harvest is taking place. There was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief and tears, and his life was characterized by it, and his death was characterized by it, and he was buried in the earth, and here we are. That wasn't the end of the story. Here we are. The fruit, the hope of a seed buried, now singing praises to his name. Hear the word of Ruth. Cling to him. Hitch your wagon to him. picture of marriage, the picture of clinging. It is a picture for us, an illustration for us of clinging to Jesus himself. You wonder why do we read those verses as a confession of our faith today? Because in effectual calling, what takes place is the Holy Spirit enables you to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the gospel. How can you embrace? Why can you embrace? Why can you cling? Because the Holy Spirit has made that possible. And so, embrace him. Cling to him. Cling to his people. And hold fast to that confession. That was our promise of forgiveness today. Hold fast to the confession of hope. 
Hold fast to it. Because what's going to happen in your lives, and maybe you recognize this yet, maybe you don't, but the waters are going to rise in your life, and the air is going to shrink out of it, and you are going to find yourself at various points along the way gasping for air. And you're going to wonder, am I going to be able to take another breath? It feels like everything is lost. It feels like everything is empty in my world. It feels like there's no hope. I've been left. I've been sentenced. I've been judged. And God is the witness against me. Judge, jury, and executioner, and here I die. Now what the scripture has to say to that is this. Your story is not over. It's not over. In Christ, our lives will end with shouts of joy. That's how the story ends. For those who are in Christ, your life ends, or if you prefer, begins with shouts of joy because it's a divine comedy. The Lord is in control of it. The Lord preserves his people. And therefore, hold fast. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart and hope. Let's pray. Gracious God, ancient people sought to follow you. We pray that you would help us to heed their example and the exhortation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bid all who would hear him, follow me, take up the cross, and follow me. Don't let anything hold you back from clinging to me. We pray then that with our heart, with our souls, with the eyes of faith, with the arms of faith, you would help us to cling to you and to your people and find that which is life indeed. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.